thanks for doing that. I don't know if you're fully aware how prayer makes this place work, but it's the only way we can break down the barriers in our hearts and in the things that we're each dealing with in our world. Uh, It's so critical. I can tell as a pastor when people are praying for me and when people aren't praying for me. It's just a game changer on every front. And while we pray, it's really a way of saying, I want to call on the authority of the one who is Lord over all and ask him, consent to him, uh, our desire for things to be affected and changed in our lives and, 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 and the things that we do in our world and the missionaries that we're getting ready to send out. It is God's way of saying, I want to help, I want to help, but I'm not going to force my way into your life or into that situation. Because I'm not going to override your will and I'm not going to override everything and and make it about me. He wants to do everything that he does through our lives, but he wants us to do it at a pace that is appropriate for where we are at and how mature we are and and, and really uh, what our capacities are. God is looking at each of us and he's saying, I I love you the way you are, but there's so much more that I want to lead you into. And that's the key right there, is being submissive to his leading. And that it really is a hard thing. But I'm just going to put the pause button on that thought for a second. And if you look at your bulletin, you'll see an image of a, of a person who's peeling back a layer that looks kind of dark and sort of depressing and maybe hopeless and despairing. And perhaps that's the layer that you brought into this room as you think about the past week or the past month or the things that are the unknowns that you're facing. Perhaps you're considering something that is way beyond anything you've ever tackled before. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a relational need. Maybe you've just been watching the news too much and you are so overwhelmed with a sense of despair over the level of evil that seems to be taking hold that that dark cloud is in many ways obscuring everything in your world. But as you look carefully at that, you know that there is a, there, there is a layer behind that that is the bright layer. It is a way of saying... Beyond this point, there's something more, and it's something that is of God. It's the light and the life of God wanting to burst into our hopelessness and replace it with something hopeful. And the pathway for that to happen is belief. It is the trust and the confidence that God is able to take you out of whatever it is that is overshadowing your life And into that place where you are experiencing his light and life and presence despite everything. And I'm hoping in this series I can help you get to that place. And as we look at the very first message installment on that, uh, we're pivoting away from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at what Jesus does after he comes down from that mount by declaring some things to some people in subtle ways about who God is. Namely... Showing up in the life of a leper and in the life of a Roman soldier and saying God has something for you. And maybe some of us in this room have had our moment of doubt where the darkness was so overwhelming that we wondered, can God ever love me? Can God, in my circumstances with the things I've done and the things that have happened to me, is God's mercy able to draw me in as well? And I want you to know that right out of the gate, God was saying to everyone that would hear, I'm here for anyone and everyone, regardless of where they come from. 
regardless of what they're dealing with, regardless of who they represent, their station in life, or the diseases that they're carrying in their body with them. I want these people to know that I am with them. And it's great to be for somebody, but do you really have any power to make any difference if you are? And Jesus wanted to say, matter of fact, I do. I do have power. I actually have authority that I'm going to begin to unfold into the circumstances of the lives of the people who never realized that there was hope. And I want that authority to unfold into your lives as well as you begin to understand just how powerful the kingdom of God is. And how we've been duped into the belief that it's never going to get better. And how we can have, even in this day... A joy and a peace and a hope that maybe we didn't walk into this room with. And Jesus came on the scene to show us that there, there is a way and he is the way. But he has to establish a few things and that is in the minds of the people who are watching him come down from the mountain and go into the community and just at the ground level begin to touch the lives of people that are, well, they're disconnected from God, from the religious establishment, and in a lot of ways, they're pushed aside socially from everyone and everything. It's no surprise to me that Matthew opens up chapter 8 with two encounters that are, they're just, they're like, if you could look at a couple of extreme people that would be on the fringes of the minds of the people in his world and say to them, you, my friends, are welcome. And so let's just take a look at Matthew chapter 8 and look at a couple of the characters that are involved in this story and perhaps personally acknowledge that it is God's way of signaling not just to them, but to you, to us, to everyone, that God loves us, he wants to save us, and he's got a destiny for us that is way beyond the dark clouds that are overshadowing this moment. And he wants to lead you onto that path. So if we can, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Jesus kind of begins his ministry here uh, in, in earnest uh, when uh, we read these words. So when he came down from the mountain, great, cl- great cl- crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he did the unthinkable. He touched him. And he said, I will be clean. And the scripture says, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And just for the time being, before I move ahead, you see, if you're a leper, you are disconnected from your community, your people, your family, anybody who means anything to you. You have to keep a reasonable distance away from them. And the only way that you could be reintegrated into that setting was for the religious establishment to sign off on it and say, You're clean enough to come on board with your community again. And that really was just the way of life. 
And it was Jesus' way of saying, don't tell anybody what I just did, but tell those guys so that they can put you back into favorable status again. And I think the reason why Jesus didn't want him to really tell anybody a whole lot about what happened is he doesn't want a lot of fanfare right out of the gate. He doesn't want a lot of sensationalism. He doesn't want, you know, to get a million hits on YouTube in, in, in 36 hours. His goal is to just subtly begin to walk in a normal way into the lives of people so that when people look back at the story, they'll realize that's his pattern. He just kind of moves into our lives, into our situation, into our pain, and tries to speak to us in the middle of it. So there's another guy who really wanted to be a part of the community, but because of his Roman background and his status as a centurion, he had some strikes against him. But there was something about him that said, as powerful of a person as I am as a centurion, and how it is that I have authority over all of these people that I'm, I'm keeping subjected to the Roman Empire, namely Jesus' clan, he said, I want what they have. And he was, he was committed. And this guy, we're going to read about him right now. Um, after the leper was told, don't tell anybody, but just offer the gift, then Matthew writes about an encounter with the centurion. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he, he does it. I just have that kind of power. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And as you just look at that story, you, you, you know that there's more. And when, when, when he begins to just explain that a little bit, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And they'll be part of that whole community gathering. But when, but when I do, interestingly enough, there will be a whole lot of people that you wouldn't expect there. Because that's the reason why I came, was to include as many people as who are willing to be a part of something that is, uh, that is represented by my kingdom. Well, you've probably heard about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And you wonder, does it really matter on a personal level whether or not I, I'm, 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 I'm a citizen of the kingdom? Does it, does it make any difference? Well, it does in, in subtle and profound ways. It, it's a way of saying that God, the Lord Jesus, is your king. And that everything else is subject to his authority. And maybe as you try to play that, that out, you're asking yourself, well, what does that mean for the life I live, the rest of my time outside of this building, 
Six and a half days a week. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And does it make any difference at all? Well, one thing I know for sure is that we all need someone in authority, someone in charge, someone in control. And Jesus recognizes that there are a lot of people who are in control. Some are better at managing the situation than others. I'll give you an, a, just a personal example. In my house, uh, for the last few days, my wife has gone to a music convention up in Cleveland, which leaves myself and Stephen and Nigel and Boo and Tesla. And any other preachers we have around our house that I'm not aware of. And I, and I look at these guys and I'm like, well, honey, just go have a good time. Should be fine. think we got it. I didn't realize that when you have a power vacuum, things change dramatically. Well, for example, Boo, who likes to sit on a chair in our kitchen, sat on that chair all day long. Wouldn't get up. We'd move the chair around and he would just stay on that chair. Stephen even said, Dad, I turned the chair on its side completely and Boo wouldn't let go. He just hung on to there like, I'm not moving. You're not the boss of me. Steve's like put it up and said, whatever, cat. And it gets worse. So Mandy does come home and we're sitting down and we're watching television last night and... Um, I'm kind of falling asleep in the chair. Guess who's right by me? Man's best friend, Nigel. We're just kind of having a bonding moment. But Nigel's got kind of a leg issue going on, so we have to carry him up the steps right now. And so it's time to go to bed, and I go to pick him up, and he growls at me. I'm like, what? what's up with you? And I go to grab him again, growls at me again. And I'm like, fine, you can sleep down here. And I went on up the steps, and then Mom went and picked him up, and he's like, that's better. So I'm like, what's going on here? He, we, there was a delicate equilibrium here, and somehow it's lost. And I think in the power vacuum, all of the rules and who's in charge and who's not in charge began to get thrown into disarray. So I go to go to bed last night, and I'm thinking, okay, you know the drill. You sleep at my feet. I sleep here. Mom sleeps there. Go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, come back. Guess who snuggled up against Mom by the pillow? And I'm like, uh-uh. That ain't happening. So I looked at him. I said, you need to move over here. He looked at me. I looked at him. He did not blink. I just stared at him for a minute. He did not blink once. And I'm like, you're going over here. Go over here now. You do it now. I'm in charge here. Then I'm thinking to myself, I have no leverage. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I don't want to get bit either. So... Mom said, I'm just keeping my back turned to see how you're going to handle this. Well, finally I said, Mom, can you just jump in here? She turned around. She said, Nigel, can you move over there? He's like, sure. Trots right over there. And I'm like, who's in charge here? Well, I realized something from all of that. The lines of power don't flow from me. They go, other, they go through other places. And there's something about authority that on a personal level does make a difference. Whether you're in your home or whether you're in charge of your own life or whether you are in a church and you have elders and pastors and people that have a role in that regard. And they're important. And there's one reason why authority figures are important. Is that they help keep the chaos away. And they help all the energy to move in a good direction. 
Now I noticed that when my wife was gone, the dishes didn't quite look as clean. The bedrooms didn't quite look as kempt. In general, chaos was starting to take hold. But I also noticed that right before her arrival, miraculously everything got back in order. Now explain that to me, other than there's some authority here that came into play. And I honestly believe that on that personal level, it's just a way of describing what was going on in the exchange between the centurion and Jesus. Because let's let's just look at the centurion for a second. What does a centurion look like? If I could show you a picture of what a depiction of that particular soldier would be, it it looks something like that. A very intimidating, uh, foreboding presence, to say the least. Someone that if you were just a, a regular Jewish person that lived in the northern part of, of, uh, of, of the country, and you saw those people, you knew that you better, not, you better not look at them crossways. You better not, in some way or another, even show up on the radar screen, because they could just come right over and do something very mean and evil and cruel to you. But this guy, interestingly enough understood authority. I mean, let's look at the organizational chart of the Roman military. It goes something like this. I know you can't read that, but if you just look at the fourth box following all the arrows, that's about where he's at on the food chain. He's fairly high up. If you look at the other five that are underneath them, he can basically tell those people to do anything, and they have to do it. And he also knows that the people who are above him can tell him some things, and he has no choice. But he's okay with that. He accepts it. Matter of fact, he signs on for 20 years to say, that is so meaningful to me. I will also sign on the line that I will not even begin a family until after I'm done. It is so appealing because it's premised on a form of order that is meaningful. But it wasn't meaningful enough for him because he just kind of hung around this town called Capernaum. Now, if you've ever read the, the Gospels, you know there's a town called Capernaum. And maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but I'll show you a picture of it on the map. If you look at a Bible map, at the top of the Sea of Galilee is this little community that has about 1,500 people during the time of Jesus that essentially is... is premised on a livelihood from the Sea of Galilee, from fishing, the fishing industry. That's sort of what keeps it sustainable. And Jesus, for some reason, he actually lived initially at the bottom of the map, at a place where you, you can't even see where it is. It's, uh, it's, I mean, you can just keep drilling down. It's way down there. It's Jerusalem, and it is Nazareth, and then ultimately he was born in Bethlehem. But for whatever reason, he goes, up the, he goes up the river there all the way to the Sea of Galilee and begins to go to work at the top of the map there where the red dot is in a little town called Capernaum. Scripture says he made that his home. And there are reasons why he made that place his home. And they have a lot to do with his strategy. He knew that God had called him into this equation because... Well, the lines of authority are pretty jacked up, and everybody's feeling pain from it. And it goes way back into the history of, of the Bible and God's people and, and so forth, back to a moment where 
there was a rebellion and there were some entities that took, took charge. And then there was the aftermath. I'm just going to have you, if I can, uh, Stephen, just go to that slide that has um, uh, the, um, the, it's a white slide that has got God, that one. If you were to look at the, the organizational chart, if you will, of God's hierarchy, some of you have seen this before, but before creation, this is how the lines of authority were drawn. There's God, there's archangels, and then there's angels. Everybody who reads the Bible needs to have that map in their head. After creation, God made us in his image and likeness. That is, we're, we're sort of a reflection of who he is. When people see him, when it, people see us, they see him reflected, at least for a little while. And then underneath that are the peop, or the entities, the beings that are called to serve us. <laughs> Just us puny humans, archangels, including Satan, and angels, and on down the line. God said, these beings are created for the sole purpose of serving man and all of his weakness and vulnerability. But there was one archangel and several others who weren't having it, and they just essentially said, uh, no, we don't like that plan. And you read the story about the garden and Adam and Eve being tempted by the fruit. Essentially what transpired there was they consented to allow the direction that Satan was going to define their lives. They were following God. They were, they were saying, God, you're at the top of the, of the chart. We're second. We're going to do your will. But then this being shows up and says, no, you want to do it over here. And when they said, we're going to follow you, they basically perhaps didn't even realize it at the time. They were consenting to give the authority and the dominion that God had given the humans to Satan. And now Satan is running the show. And he'll take it from them. And so everything that God had set up began to kind of unravel to the point where the organizational chart was God, Satan, and humans. Now God could have just said, nah, I'm just going to hit the reset button and we're going to do it all over. But there's an interesting aspect of the Holy Quit that God is very careful not to violate any more than he absolutely has to. And that's free will. He wants you and I to be in a relationship with him through our own desire, through our own longing, through our own wanting to be in a relationship with him. I mean, imagine having a child and you basically, no matter what kind of being you are, or even a friend, and you went to him and you said, you will love me no matter what. You have no control over this. Well, I don't know of very many relationships that are healthy that work that way. And so God is, he's, he, he's wanting to give us the ability to say, yeah, God, I, I want you. You're worth it. You're a good God. And so he doesn't, he doesn't mess with this other than to say, I'm going to bring somebody into the equation and eventually he's going to reclaim what's been taken. And he's not going to do it in some magic going to press a button or wave a magic wand, he's going to come in and become one of us. He's going to embody everything that we are, even within our own limitations. Yet he's going to be God. And he's going to be a type of human that is 
sort of the, 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 the new human 2.0. He's going to be the one, the second Adam, who if we trust him and we identify with his humanity, all of a sudden we find our rightful place again. I hope you got all that because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's important to know. Jesus was aware that his job was to come in and to regain the authority that had been lost for so long. To recapture the earth that had been so broken and damaged. To take souls who were now living under the authority and the dominion of the prince of darkness. And tell them, if you trust me in faith and you believe that my death on the cross and the empty tomb are sufficiently powerful to deliver you, they will. They will do within the miracle of what those things did for us. They will enable us to be drawn out of the captivity that we have by a tyrant who is exercising authority over us and bring us into his kingdom. And how does that play out? How does the tyrant work in our lives? Well, I've been pastoring long enough. I I, I know how he works. He wants to do everything that he possibly can to lead us away from God. He wants to take the things in our lives that are important to us and say, isn't that better than God? He wants to, if anything else, draw us into addictions that will make it so that we don't even have the, the free will anymore to choose not to do that. Whatever it takes, the one thing that he doesn't want to see happen is for you and I to believe that Jesus can do the unthinkable. And so when Jesus walked up to the leper and he said, would you like to be healed? The leper just knew in his gut. Yes, and you can. And he did. And then when he went to the centurion and the centurion actually came up to him and said, I see what's going on here. It's, I'm smart enough to know that this runs a lot deeper than just the Roman Empire and a bunch of Jews with their temple that's in a precarious position. I know that there's something more going on. There's a deeper layer here. And I know, I know it's a game changer. And I know that my servant who has been injured in some accident, who is like family to me because I can't even begin a family until I'm done with this military stint, but I care so deeply for this person. I know that you can touch their life and you can heal them. And Jesus said, you get it. I'll be right over. And the guy said, I understand your authority so well that you can do it from a distance. You know, it'd be like me turning the light switch on in room 201. Jesus has that kind of ability. And the soldier knew. He knew he had that level of authority. And I think it telegraphed a lot of things to a lot of people. One of them to the religious establishment. Here's a couple people that you don't like. That you've been shutting out. That you've been keeping from the things of God. You know, like the lepers. Nobody wants to be around that guy. And like the 
soldier who, he's a bad guy. And Jesus was saying, believe it or not, they're caught up in all of this as well. And I, wanna, I want them to know I'm here for them too. And maybe you have been caught up in some stuff that you're thinking, yeah, but that doesn't apply. But in reality, it's just a power struggle. It's a question of who's, who's in charge. You know, Nigel looked at me and I know if dogs could talk, he said twice, you're not the boss of me. I mean, that's what his facial expression was. You're not the boss of me. And when he said that, I'm like, I've heard that before. Matter of fact, I've heard it at least on, through three different people. You know, the people that you raise up in your house that when they get to be about 17, 18, 19, they start telling everybody, you're not the boss of me. And we're like, and then they're like, you're not. And what do you say to that? Well, I can only say I've been there. I was that guy. I was the one who parked my car the wrong way in the high school parking lot, who had a principal that was a drill instructor that liked to keep order, who was actually a boxing champion. And I parked my car in there just out of defiance one day. I think it was just out of instinct saying, I'm not going to let anybody be the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, sure enough, went to class. Five minutes into the class, Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Is Leonard Moore in there? Would you send him down? And I'm like, this is going to be a power struggle, and I know who's going to lose like instantly. So I went down there, and he took his finger, and he kind of poked it in my chest, and he said, is that your car? And I said, yeah. He said, why did you park it that way? And I said, I don't know. And then he said, you're not going to park it that way ever again. He just pounded his finger into my chest. And I'm thinking, if he's doing that with his finger, what's he going to do with other parts of his body? So I'm like, yes, sir, you're in charge. I will fall in line, and I will do what you asked me to do. And I walked out of there realizing that there's somebody in charge. But there was something about that period of time where I was trying to differentiate myself and say I'm, I'm kind of my own boss. And that's a normal developmental feature. Every kid goes through it. You just hope that, well, you just hope when they get to the other side, they don't have too many scars. I mean, you probably heard me reference the space shuttle. Whenever it comes into the atmosphere and then all of a sudden things start burning up really fast. Only it's designed so that it doesn't burn up really fast. Yet there's about, I don't know, five to eight minutes where it's coming through there and everybody's like, Hmm. And you can kind of hear elevator music playing in the background at NASA in, down in Texas while that eight minutes is going on. Everybody's just sort of like, I hope they don't burn up. I hope a tile doesn't fall off of that thing and everything incinerate that space shuttle. And it's almost like there's no communication whatsoever for that period of time and you just don't know. And with kids that age, they go through that phase where they're like, they don't want to talk to you. How, how was your day? Fine. Would you do the dishes? Now, I'm not picking on any kid. I got three of them and they've all had this conversation. Would you do the dishes? Yeah, later. Which is code language I discovered pretty quickly for never. And I realized that, yeah, this is a power struggle. This is, you're not the boss of me. And I wonder sometimes as I'm going through that, will this thing ever come correct? 
But what's interesting is somebody charted it like a, like a graph. You know, I, I should have probably drawn it. It's kind of like, here are your kids and here you are. You know, they're the ones on top and you're paralleling together. And then about 17, 18, the relationship kind of goes like this. They're out here somewhere, but they always come back. And then all of a sudden, they're that way. Usually it has to do with need a place to stay, need some help with some funds. You hope it's just, I need a little wisdom. I'm ready to move on. But it's amazing how it gets recaptured. It's beautiful. And it's by design. Because it's God's way of helping us to say, you are your own person. You have your own free will. You can make your own choices. And as you get to be an adult, you tune into that really well. But you also learn something else that I learned at 17 to 19. I made a lot of choices. And it didn't always end well. It ended in circumstances that I can honestly say I'm not proud of. And I realized something. There's a reason why God says you need to have certain boundaries. There's a reason why you need to be a moral and ethical being. Because it'll reduce your drama load way down. You won't be shooting yourself in the foot all the time. And you start to recognize as much of an authority as I am, I don't do a very good job of it if I'm disconnected from the greatest authority. But here's the really sad part. There is one who masquerades as an angel of light. There is one who Jesus even said was the prince or the ruler of this world. And just as a result of that status, there are a lot of people who are saying, we're following him. He seems to make a lot of sense. And a few of us have followed him just a little ways down the road and we recognize something. He always overpromises and underdelivers. Whereas Jesus says, I've got more than I can even contain, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go subtly into the situation. And I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm going to give you expectations that say, yeah, you're only here. But when the right time comes, wow, it just, it just blows up. It's, it's incredible. It's like when you go to the Apple store, you know, and you want to get your iPhone fixed or something like that. And they'll say, yeah, it's probably going to be about three hours. And then they give you a phone call in about an hour and say, oh, it's done. And you're like, man, they put me to the head of the, of the queue. Or you ship your computer off to Texas and they say it'll be about this time next week when it comes back. And we did that twice. In two days it was back. Do you know how that made you feel? And it's their way of saying, yeah, we got your attention, didn't we? You like us, don't you? Because we under-promised and over-delivered. But Jesus isn't doing that in any, any marketing sense. He's just telling you, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to come in and override your world. But if you need my help, I have the authority to help you. And to make your life what I can envision it can become that you can't even begin to understand. And so Jesus is in this little town. It's called Capernaum. And he's telling people the good news. And a lot of people are starting to say he's the real deal. Some of them because they just have a real need to get reconnected. Because they've been disconnected for a long time. And they just want to get back in the good graces of other people. 
but they got some form of leprosy. And Jesus says, we can take care of that. Other people look at their souls and they say, I got a little bit of the leprosy of the soul going on. I got some things that have disconnected me from the community. And Jesus says, we can take care of that too. It's called grace and forgiveness. And then others are savvy enough to see that there's a variety of authorities in play here. And I know which one is worthy of choosing. And they choose him. And maybe you're on that spectrum somewhere and God's saying, the whole reason I came, the whole reason I came, even if you're the only person on the planet, the only reason I came was for you. And that's a pretty special feeling, isn't it? It's nice to tell my kids on the other side of that. Your identity can be a lot of things, but the number one thing at the deepest part of your life's foundation is you're a child of God. And you're kept by God because you consented to having Him as your Lord and Savior. And there are believers who come in and out of this place, and I know that that same consent happens where they say, I'm ready to move on in the chart to where it's God and that it's me when it says humans, it means humans in Christ and those dark forces of the world that are trying to obscure my life. Well, I'm going to rise above it. And there's one path that God's laid out for us and it's called belief. And belief is just a posture towards God that says, I trust you. I trust you. Even when it doesn't make any sense. I believe. Bless you. And as God is working in this moment and in our lives, he may be saying, do you trust me? Do you believe? Do you look at what's going on in your life and that tapestry of darkness? Are you willing to go beyond that? And maybe God's saying to you, I can lead you out of that and I want to lead you out of that. And hopefully we're a community that you can feel like won't treat you like a leper because it didn't treat us like a leper. And we want to be that people that says we're all we are all one at the foot of the cross.